The Verso Podcast, the home of radical thinking. This mythology comes with institutional and state backing. I mean, at the height of the war, they were trying to discuss who to replace Churchill. And there is an industry which puts the mythology in place. It's not that these histories aren't available, they're covered up. A lot of energy, money and force, I mean brute force, into keeping that mythology in place. And so Churchill is made into this sacred figure who can't be attacked. Hello and welcome to the Verso podcast. I'm Eleanor Penny. Just to let you know that in this episode, we'll be talking about the British Empire and some of its atrocities. So there are references to racist language as well as racial and sexual violence. So listener discretion is advised. In 1919, the British Secretary of State for War and Air wrote a memo declaring himself strongly in favour of using poisoned gas against uncivilised tribes. When he talked to the Peel Commission about indigenous people in America and Australia, he said, I do not admit that a wrong has been done to these people by the fact that a stronger race, a higher grade race, a more worldly wise race, to put it that way, has come in and taken their place. In 1943, when he'd risen to the rank of Prime Minister, he told US Vice President Henry Wallace, why be apologetic about Anglo-Saxon superiority, that we were superior? That same year, as famine claimed millions of lives in Bengal, he refused to stop exporting life-saving grain from the region. He said any relief would be useless, given that Indian people, quote, breed like rabbits. That man's name, of course, was Winston Churchill, and in a 2002 BBC poll of over a million people, he was voted the greatest Briton of all time. So, how did we get here? How did Churchill get reshaped into an icon of British exceptionalism? And what does that tell us about how power is wielded and how national memories are made? I talked with Tarek Ali and Priyam Vada Gopal about race, empire and the making of Britishness. Tarek Ali is a writer, filmmaker and an editor at The New Left Review. He's written numerous books including Bush in Babylon, the Clash of Fundamentalisms, and most recently, Winston Churchill, His Times, His Crimes. Priyam Vardagopal is university reader in Anglophone and Related Literatures in the Faculty of English at the University of Cambridge and a fellow at Churchill College. Her works include the Indian English novel Nation, History and Narration and Insurgent Empire, Anti-Colonial Resistance and British Descent. I'd love to start with you. Your work in Surgeon Empire lays out a framework of a sort of a Prospero's gift, the idea that civilization, that freedom and democracy was granted to its current slash former colonies by Britain. It's a sort of update on that old myth of the civilizing mission. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, the book specifically addresses the story that Britain had an empire that conquered in order to free. This is Lord Macaulay speaking about the abolition of slavery, but talking more widely about Britain's imperial project as 
one that conquered in order to spread freedom and liberty. And one of the consequences of this mythology is that when colonies eventually gained independence and liberation, that was then presented within the imperial story as the logical outcome of imperial rule. So everything basically was assimilated into that myth. And of course, the most standard version of Prospero's gift is that the colonized were Caliban, that they were the savage who learned to speak from Prospero and learned to speak, literally learned to speak English and speak back to the empire in that language. And so all manner of resistance to empire was assimilated and folded into the story of Britain as ultimately a freedom bestowing empire. And and that's really the argument of the book is to unpack that mythology. Tarek, when you talk about Churchill and more specifically the cult of Churchill, how his life or more accurately his myth is being kind of integrated into British public life, we maybe forget or erase how fundamentally attached he is to to these kinds of ideas that Priya is outlining, this sort of right to rule, the um, inalienable right of the Anglo-Saxon race to dominate the globe. And I think it's worth revisiting his legacy a little bit there. So what's your take on, you know, how we should think about Churchill? I think we should think about Churchill like we do about most reactionary politicians who emerged in Europe at that time in their various empires. We think about Churchill because the British state won't give up on him. But I think what we have to understand is during his lifetime, Churchill was severely criticized, but sometimes in vicious language, by people in Britain, opposition politicians, An Iron Bevan attacked him. Many conservatives attacked him for being of liberty gibbet and for being no different from Goering and German fascists. A Tory Tory MP's wife actually attacked him in those words. He's no better than Goering. So Churchill's reputation was never as strong as it is now. He was hated by the British working class. Welsh and Scots workers in particular absolutely despised him. And not a single council in Wales donated money for his statue. Not a single one. Even those run by people not so... They said, no, he's not one of us. So this attempt to recast Churchill is a relatively modern one. And it started under Margaret Thatcher, the needs of the Falklands War, and then has carried on. And the more wars uh, Britain gets involved in, uh, tailing and uh, doing the bidding of the United States, the more Churchill is used. Currently, he's been used in the Ukraine war. And Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, often referred to now as Churchill. And he himself sort of compares himself to Churchill. So these are the uses of Churchill, and they had to be demystified, quite honestly, because the decolonizers, the students, had done a great job raising the issue again. And so I thought we should just put down the other side. Tell me more about why you call it a cult, why you use this language of practice and devotion rather than something that just happens to not be true, a kind of ordinary misconception. I don't think it is an ordinary misconception. 
I think that this is a very well-organized and manufactured misconception because countries that have little else to offer sometimes chose heroes. And Churchill is one of those who's been chosen as the beginning and end of the British Empire and a great figure, etc., which is totally false. I mean, to be fair, even he never saw himself completely like that. I mean, at the height of the war in 1942, they were trying to discuss who to replace Churchill with. That is what was going on. So the fact this is not known, you know, it's just not known. It's not that these histories aren't available, they're covered up. And so Churchill is made into this sacred figure who can't be attacked. Something that unifies both of your work is it's this curious robustness to the mythologies that you're trying to unpack that seems like no matter how reliably and sort of thoroughly they're debunked, they just keep coming back as this like fundamental part of British public life that sort of shapes the rest of our discourse, shapes what is possible. What does that tell us about their function they serve in in creating this idea of of Britishness? I'm wondering, uh, Priya, if you could weigh in on that. Yeah, I mean, one point that Tarek made that I think is really important is that this mythology comes with institutional and state backing. And there is an industry which puts the mythology in place and puts a lot of energy, money and force, I mean, brute force into keeping that mythology in place. Uh, My own experience of this was trying to organize, for instance, a critical series on Churchill, race and empire at Cambridge. And one of the things that happened very, very swiftly is that both the tabloids and think tanks that are close to government, like policy exchange, swung into action to shut down what was essentially a small academic venture, you know, a small seminar series. And that was my close encounter, if you like, with the Churchill industry. It's not that the myth is tenacious, it's that a lot of money, a lot of energy, and a lot of power goes into sustaining that mythology and goes into ensuring that other stories are actively suppressed or pushed to the margins. And I think that we have to be really aware of the institutional dimensions of imperial mythmaking because it's not happening in some kind of natural way. Why do you think that is? Why the energy behind making all criticism of this man seemingly impossible on the public stage? I mean, there are possibly some cracks showing now with, you know, increasing attempts to sort of have some kind of honest restitution with our collective history. But, you know, try going on GMB and saying Churchill occasionally was not a very nice man. And as both of you have experienced, you get pretty traduced by a, a lot of the media. And that is no small thing. So why this fury? What else have they got? What has Britain got? What is Britain today? It's essentially a, a state and a you know offshore island attached by a wire to the United States. Is Britain independent? Does it have any sovereignty? No. It does what the U.S. wants, whether it's war, whether it's economic policy, whether it's sanctioning countries. It has no independence at all. And in the lack of this real independence, which it used to have, 
for some time, even after it stopped being an empire, they need people like Churchill. And they need to glorify parts of the empire. I mean, if you look, for instance, at what happened in Kenya, a real appalling event in imperial history. You know, some are known. The Kenyan thing was covered up. I remember debating Niall Ferguson at some American university. He more or less denied it. And I said, Kenya isn't in your book. Oh, nothing much happened there. Well, now we we had American historians on American campuses exposing what happened in Kenya. And suddenly British historians accept it. So even on an ideological level, they follow the US. They don't want to annoy it too much. And Churchill is the one thing they think they have in common. I think they're wrong because the Americans are cynical in the way they use it. But I think that's all Britain has, so they want to hang on to it. And it's a travesty. And I have to say, Eleanor, that what has delighted me the most is the letters I'm getting from young people, university students, sixth formers, saying thanks for writing the book. That's all. Not more than that. Yeah. So we fight on Priya's book as well as mine. They serve a need because they provide an alternative. And of course we can't compete with the mega television networks and the mainstream media and huge publishers, but we we won't give up. I mean, why should we? Let's talk a little bit about Kenya and about recovering those histories. I'm curious, Priya, as to what it's like to work within an institution. I mean, you're at Churchill College, Cambridge, and um, you're very much sort of you know, in and against these institutions which have sort of tasked themselves with reproducing this myth, but you are also researching and recovering things that it seems like is so fundamentally damaging to even how Britain imagines itself in recent history. Of course, I think we're, we're referring to organised resistance from, from the Kikuyu people, also known as the Mau Mau uprising in the 1960s. That's very, very recent history. Yeah, I mean, look, one thing to say is that there are multiple Britons outside the mythology that we're discussing. So there is the mythology funded and enforced by state and corporations But there are also Britons and very long traditions of Britain, which is a dissident Britain. And that's something I wanted to draw out in my book. Britain's people are not entirely assimilable to the myth of official Britain. And I think that universities are also spaces of contradictions, that they are a place like Cambridge is enormously tied up with the British establishment and the British state and old money and participates in funding and facilitating these mythologies. But equally, these are places that have, you know, in their time and over time and to this day produced wonderful books, important knowledge, important kinds of intellectual contributions. And I think for me, it's a case of working within those contradictions that actually the places that places like Cambridge might on the one hand be very establishmentarian and very much complicit in fostering these mythologies. On the other hand, they do enable what is a very long and powerful intellectual tradition in Britain. And 
I think that contradictions are really also at the heart of insurgent empire, which is to say there is the mythology of Britain, the great imperial mother, but there are also traditions of dissent and resistance to these mythologies within Britain as much as outside. And I think that for us, you know, much like the young people writing to Tariq, uh, for us, our task is to address ourselves to these dissident forces and dissident traditions and help create new stories, stories that the establishment is is not really keen on us hearing and speaking about. I'd love to know a little bit more about those stories. I think when we talk about uh, Churchill in particular and sort of colonial administrators in general, we usually find the retort like, oh, he was a man of his time, she was a woman of her time, which tends to, of course, do the work of exculpating their deeds, but also of, of erasing the kind of histories that you're talking about, Priya, ones where people saw what was happening for what it is, both within the kind of colonial periphery and the metropole itself. Can you tell us a little bit about the sort of stories that you've unearthed there, Priya? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that the book sets out to do is to address this incredibly condescending idea that everybody in the past thought in exactly the same way. Given that it would be impossible to represent our moment as having a single view on anything. It's equally fatuous and facile to talk about people in the late 19th century or the early 20th century being completely agreed on something as massive and consequential as the British Imperial Project. The book looks at quite different kinds of figures who didn't actually participate in the great imperial story. Um, My favorite figure from the 19th century is the aristocrat and man of leisure, uh, Wilfred Blunt, who starts out as a Tory. You know, he's not a liberal. He's not a working class man. He's a, he's a kind of minor aristocrat. He's into race horses. Um, he's into kind of dressing up in oriental costumes and gadding about in, you know, Egypt and Arabia. And he ends up becoming one of the most powerful voices criticizing and indeed denouncing not just Britain's imperial project, but also Britain's mythology of itself. Um, And he's somebody who becomes radicalized by witnessing the 1882 revolution in Egypt and by being in contact with Egyptian intellectuals and thinkers like, you know, Jamaluddin al-Afghani, people who are in a sense, thinking about empire from a fundamentally different position. And Blunt's radicalization into becoming one of Britain's most fierce imperial voices, I think is for me an exemplary story in terms of how dissidence not only exists in Britain, but is forged by interaction with anti-colonial voices and figures outside Britain. The links between the forms of discipline and the kind of modes of governance in colonies and also at what is sometimes known as the home front, aka against working class people within the kind of mainland UK, mainland Britain, very much something that Churchill is very much aware of. He's seeing himself, um, as you were outlining, Tarek, as as a, a warrior, both against colonial dissidents and against dissidents at home. Can you talk to us a little bit about how he conceives of his, his role there? He conceived of his role first and foremost 
as a defender of the British Empire, which he thought was the most amazing achievement for a small island to achieve. I mean, on that he was not totally wrong from his point of view. But from that, he moved on to believe that anything that challenged the stability of this empire, its ability to rule, the examples, as Priya has been talking about, dissidents within Britain spreading abroad, that he stopped. And the working class movement and the attacks on it, which were ferocious on his part, was because he didn't believe, or well, he, he was a staunch believer in the class struggle. And he defended his class, which was this strange, weird mix of the agrarian and urban bourgeoisies that Britain had created after the English Revolution in the 17th century. So that is what he believed in. And to be fair to him, he did not make any secret of these beliefs. They were openly expressed. It's those who are trying to sort of cover him up and uh, brush all the warts out of his portraits, who are covering him up. Basically, he was a deeply reactionary figure. And look, the Second World War, too, is partially mythologized. The big victory came largely because of the strength of the Soviet Union at the time and the Red Army. Hitler's armies were destroyed on the battlefields of what is now Russia, but was then the Soviet Union in two wars. They were destroyed by American armaments being produced by the American arms industry to keep their allies uh, supplied. The role of Churchill came about because Hitler failed to push through his attack on Britain. The Dunkirk War was a total disaster. And we now know from German historians in art that had Hitler not stopped his generals, they would have taken the entire army and moved on to take England. And when later asked to explain this disastrous decision, Hitler said, we were not ready to run the British Empire. It was too much for us to do. We thought better let Britain run it. Whether he believed it or not, because they ran the French Empire with the help of the French in uh, North Africa and elsewhere, they could have run the British Empire with the full total collaboration of British officials in Africa and Asia, but they chose not to do that. And the fact that this was a mythology came very clear. If Churchill was that popular during the war, how come that the first occasion the British people had to vote after the war, they voted him out of office. That is, that is a question that I feel like is is almost one of the sticking points of the Churchill cult, right? Okay, if he was considered so brilliant by everyone, why did they kick him out at the first opportunity? We sort of miss the fact that Churchill it was a very public figure in British life, of the, and a very controversial figure in many ways way before he became a prime minister. I know, know certainly that I learned all about his role in World War II at school, obviously in this very diminished and partial way, but had no idea about the life that he lived before as a colonial soldier and as a cabinet minister, all this kind of thing. I think your book is, is really fascinating in, in just the detail that it portrays, not just of Churchill, but of the kind of the world that made him. So could you talk to us a little bit about his career leading up to the Second World War? 
Well, his career leading up to it, politically, I mean, the thing is, Churchill as an individual was determined to climb the ladder, and he used everything he could, but literally everything, including his mother, her contacts, etc. He wanted to be known, he wanted to be famous, he wanted to achieve more than his father had achieved. And the empire was the way to do it. So he looked around for where were wars being fought. The first war he got involved in was Cuba, where the Spanish were fighting against Cuban patriots. And Churchill zipped off there and was very admiring of the Spanish, despite all the atrocities. Then he went to Africa got involved in a number of wars, the Boer War, which they fought against the white South Africans, and the war in Sudan, which they fought against uh, the Mahdi. And actually, Priya's point on Blunt is very well taken, because the Mahdi, who was being attacked in the British press as a fanatic, a crazy guy, like they attack many Muslims today, the Mahdi actually proposed to the British who were occupying Sudan. Why don't we sit down across the table and have talks, provided one of the mediators from our side is Mr. Blunt, an Englishman. That's how far they were prepared to go. But the British said, no, we're going to destroy you. Well, we know what happened, the fall of Khartoum and the martyrdom of General Gordon. Churchill got heavily involved in the side. He went there. He wrote about it. So his career, more or less since he was a young guy, was imperialism, defending the British Empire, very proud of the role his great ancestor, the Duke of Marlborough, had played. Uh, he wanted to succeed him and become the Duke. That's, that was his, his social political formation. So that doesn't come as a huge surprise, and he carried on. You know, It wasn't just before the war, it was during the war. I mean, what he did to the Greek resistance is really shocking, if you read the little chapter on Greece, decided they had to be defeated, destroyed, atomized, because they were all either communists or socialists or on the left. And there's little doubt that had the British army not played this role in destroying them, they would have been in power in Greece and had Stalin not gone along with it. So this attempt to determine the contours of the post-war world were already there, actually during the war itself. They were building up towards that. And then there was India, of course, towards which Churchill had a pathological hatred. Many of his colleagues said, I mean, his Secretary of State, Emery, said that as far as India is concerned, Churchill is really a bit insane and no different from Hitler. No different from Hitler. These are conservative colleagues of Churchill. So we say this today and, you know, there's a big brouhaha. It's because people have forgotten history. Really, my book is just doing that, is to recover this lost history, which exists, which is there, people can uh, read it. And his last big act was encouraging the overthrow of an elected leader in Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh, who was removed by a coup masterminded by British intelligence and the CIA. We know, all this is now public knowledge. And the first person 
who the head of CIA came to report their huge success to was Churchill, who was half dead, but this revived him a bit. You know, his mood improved. He said, we've got Mosmos or whatever he called him, because Musaddaq had nationalized British oil. So there's a consistent pattern. You know, one hasn't had to invent or exaggerate anything. In fact, I didn't put in some things, you know, or take Ireland, for instance. The hostility to Irish nationalism, the refusal to recognize that Ireland was actually its own state, that Irish was a nationality, that it was an entity which had been wrecked for hundreds of years. Can I just jump in? One thing I, I think we should note about the Churchill industry is how successful it has been in emphasizing Churchill's foreign policy and Churchill as imperialist and Churchill as defender of Britain against the Nazis and how beautifully it has written out something which Tariq's book does bring out is his ferocious contempt for the British working classes and for for ordinary Britons. And Actually, in Insurgent Empire, one of the things that struck me looking at some of the dissidents within Britain is that they were able to make the connection between the exploitation and oppression of people in Britain and what was happening in the colonies. And they saw this as connected, that the the ruling classes of Britain who were complicit in oppression in Britain were the same people who were ruling abroad. The Churchill industry has managed to you know, pull away that whole side of Churchill, which was about crushing domestic dissent and domestic resistance, and focused on him as this kind of magisterial figure striding the world stage. And I think we have to concede that that industry has been immensely successful, so that now if you criticize Churchill, you're seen as being anti-British. But actually, as we know, as we were just talking, in the 1940s, Churchill was hated. And there are still people, you know, whose grandparents and great-grandparents are known to nurture a kind of bitter and burning hatred for the man. And, And I think it is very interesting that they've been able to make this separation between domestic and imperial Churchills. There seems to be this symmetry in your works between the ways in which ideas about democracy and freedom and what it means to rule are formed in struggle. And I'm very kind of taken with the way in which both of your books outline how that process happens for the ruling classes as well as the working classes, the way that that sort of the antagonisms, the racism, white supremacy is sharpened through exposure to and through the process of colonial domination. But I'm curious, Priya, if you could tell us a little bit more about, I guess, how people were resisting the kinds of policies that people like Churchill were instigating throughout the empire. Look, resistance to imperialism took a lot of different forms, and it wasn't all along national lines. And what you see through the 20th century, well into the post-war period, is rebellion in the form of trade union rebellions, labor uprisings, demonstrations, boycotts. They take different forms in different places. We know that the Caribbean in the 1930s was a hotbed of labor activism, largely directed at big corporations, big British corporations like, you know, Tate and Lyle, the sugar giants, the big 
big petrochemical giants in Trinidad. In India, in the 1920s and 1930s, in undivided India, there is a massive amount, not just of kind of mainstream Gandhian nationalism, but also, again, labor resistance, organizing. So it takes different forms at different moments in time. And, you know, it can take the form of riots. It can take violent forms, just as much as it can take the form of boycotts and sanctions and organizing in ways that we would recognize to be civil disobedience, etc., etc. So the terrain of anti-colonialism, the terrain of resistance to the British Empire is varied. And one of the things that I was keen to do in the book is to not make it about nations versus Empire, because I think that that's a very easy story to slide into. And I think it's quite important to understand that often people weren't necessarily resisting the British Empire as an entity, but resisting aspects of it which impacted their own lives and well-being. And so I think that's something that I'm quite keen to draw out, not least because it ties into the myriad ways in which people are resisting today. And that takes the form of strikes and demonstrations and boycotts and and so on. It's you know it doesn't necessarily take place in the form of nation versus nation. I really want to come back to the uh, question of the nationality and those kind of imaginations of communities. Tarek, did you want to jump in, please? Priya is absolutely right about that. But if we are looking in terms of huge national uprisings, the one which hasn't been equaled and which nearly drove the British out of India was what the British historians called the mutiny of 1857 and what people like me and others refer to as a uprising. I called it the great uprising because it has many lessons to offer. First, it was the first attempt by Indians to get together. So the leader of the uprising was the last Mughal king, complete non-entity. But it was agreed by Hindus, the Sikhs who fought against them, to have a nominal figurehead who was the Muslim emperor. Lots of Hindus, lots of Muslims fought together against the British. So this attempt by the current Indian government, it it enters into that debate to say that are the Muslims always interlopers. This comes from people who actually were very close to the British, the RSS and the people in power in India today. But the 1857, the great uprising, shook the British to the core. And had a few things gone the other way, the British would certainly have been driven out of parts of India. And it's after that that their racism became more pronounced. They introduced apartheid in India. And those who talk about civilization, Eleanor, it should be realized that when the British left India, 90% of the population, 9-0, was illiterate. They educated the elite, but they did not educate the ordinary people in India or most of their colonies, apart from the white colonies, Australia, New Zealand, etc. They didn't do it. The other point I wanted to make was this, that, you know, you have some interesting ironies, like when the British, scared by the emergence of a radical monarchy in Afghanistan, after the Second World War, 
This was a king, Amanullah, who was radicalized by two things, the Russian Revolution of 1917 and Kamal Ataturk's victory in Turkey, making Turkey a secular state, abolishing the caliphate, etc. The Afghan queen, Saraya, was a feminist and had insisted that the new constitution being prepared in Afghanistan included the right of women to vote. Well, leave alone Churchill, it was way ahead of Britain where women were, didn't have the right to vote. So had the British not organized an uprising to topple that government, using extremely reactionary to tribal elements and saying, look at this queen, manufacturing photographs of her in a bikini on European coast, manufacturing, everything was set in motion. And they toppled this government and replaced it. Otherwise, Afghan women would have had the right to vote before American women, British women, and most European women. Now, these are tiny facts, and in the scale of history don't add up, but they're very symbolic of what took place. Richard Gott, in his book on the British Empire, shows that quite a large number of colonies, he more or less proves it, there was a revolt of one sort or another every single week throughout the British Empire, starting from the Americas to Africa to Asia. Somewhere or the other, people were in revolt. Now, this is also, I mean, Priya talks about it, Richard does, other historians do. It's not fully entered the conscious. I mean, not many of these books are in school courses. I mean, Priya's book should be on school courses. I mean, why not? Because it actually shows there were good people in Britain who fought against all this. Their numbers may have been few, and they didn't include the Labour Party leaders then and now, but they did include lots of people, intellectuals, ordinary people who had sympathy for what was going on by the colonized in, in different parts of the world. So there's a rich history there. And, you know, I mean, the, the, the problem is the space for this is being restricted. You know, university life is being restricted. It's not as good as it was, for instance, in the 19th or the 20th centuries. There was more freedoms allowed than today. Big attacks on dissent on campuses and money, 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 money is the big issue at these universities. Otherwise, why would they stop this seminar at Cambridge? It was actually, you know, that's one of the reasons I wrote the Churchill book. I was so angry that this seminar had come under attack that I said something's got to be done. And one of the reasons I sat down and won was, was, was this appalling attitude that Churchill was sacred. He couldn't be attacked. In complete nonsense. He can be, should be, and I hope many other people will produce work to further demystify him. I couldn't agree more. I would love to talk for a bit about the place of World War II in national imaginary and I guess the role of fascism within that. The UK does not have a sort of moment of, of national birth 
per se, but I think we can sort of understand the way in which 1945 has been narrativized and Britain's role in the war has been narrativized as taking something of a role of like a national founding moment. Um, what is so curious to me is that it allows the British state to imagine itself as always necessarily in opposition to fascism. I think we can sort of see traces of this in the way in which Hitler's putative victory is talked about when we talk about like I hear people all the time saying oh we would be speaking German and I think hmm, you'd be speaking German I wouldn't exist because that's those weren't the stakes right I would love for you to talk a little bit Priya about what we mean by the colonial boomerang and, and, and British state and British empire's actual relationship to fascism oh yes well, I mean that's a that's a huge question I guess I'll I'll take it back to insurgent empire briefly one of the formations I talk about are black intellectuals in Britain, people who originally came from parts of the Caribbean and Africa and then lived in places like London and Manchester and were very, very important. People like George Padmore and CLR James and ITA Wallace Johnson and many others who were very important in creating an anti-colonial atmosphere in sections of the British public sphere. One of the things that they do in the 1940s that I think is really relevant to our present moment is to say that this particular distinction that we now find very familiar but was only just being put into place in the 40s between the good colonial nations, Britain and France, and the bad fascist nations, Italy, Germany, etc., that that distinction from the perspective of the colonized was a questionable distinction. That those who were colonized did not see Britain as a freedom bestowing, tolerant, compassionate entity. That they saw the red teeth and claws of the British Empire, and to many at the receiving end of violence, particularly in places like Kenya, you know, where there were detention camps, where people were subjected to torture, where there was dispossession and ethnic cleansing, that for people at the receiving end of that imperial violence, there was very little distinction to be made between Hitler's version of unfreedom and tyranny and what the British Empire was putting into place. That was something they warned against without being at all appeasing of Hitler. They were very clear that anti-Semitism and Hitler and Nazism must be defeated. But George Padmore would write repeatedly in the kind of independent British press about the falseness of the distinction between empire as fundamentally freedom-loving and Nazism as the only embodiment of tyranny and oppression. And he was, you know, he was warning against this distinction. But today, that distinction has won in, in the form of this mythology that Britain is forever a champion of human rights and freedom, and that fascism is something that happens elsewhere. And I think that that binary is going to be more and more consequential in years to come as we see increasing authoritarianism on the part of the British ruling classes. 
Tarek, can you tell us a little bit more off the back of that about Churchill's relationship and perhaps the aristocracy in Britain more generally's relationship to you know, the organised far-right Mussolini, Hitler, Franco? Well, look, Churchill, being who he was, thought that the main enemy uh, of the British Empire was the Russian Revolution. And he was right on that, because the Russian Revolution did encourage anti-colonial movements throughout the world. There's no doubt about that. In that sense, it was a revolution with a genuine global impact which the French and the English ones before had not had. And people, ordinary people, illiterate people would say, look what the Russians have done. They've got rid of the Tsar, they're fighting the uh, British, etc. So Churchill ideally would have liked the fascists to have turned their guns on the Russians and defeated them. There's no doubt the Western states were in favor of encouraging Hitler, don't attack us, why don't you deal with the Russians first, then we can, then they've done a compromise. Now, there's much evidence for this, by the way. The appeasers who are constantly attacked, and rightly so, were not that much out of line with mainstream British imperial thought at the time. Churchill absolutely adored Mussolini, the Italian fascist, adored him, said he was a great guy. And what many people don't know, that this was not just Churchill, it was the British state working in tandem. I mean, how many people in Britain know that King George V paid a state visit to Italy and and pinned a British imperial badge, a knight commander of the Bath, KCB, on Mussolini's lapel. This is the king of England. So, you know, Churchill wasn't exactly alone. Uh, He was part, which is why I've tried to, in my book, I've tried to contextualize it. It's not just Churchill, it's the system that produced him before the war and after. And in terms of what line should be taken towards the Spanish fascist leader, Franco, Churchill defended him throughout the war, really put pressure on the United States not to do anything to him, even though Franco's legions were fighting in Stalingrad against the Russians. The Russians were very weak on this. They should have insisted that Franco be removed from power immediately after the Second World War. Churchill didn't want it. He liked Franco. He said, this is a military dictator who toppled an elected government in Spain in 1936. That's what he did. And a civil war ensued, extremely brutal civil war. And much of Britain, I probably, if not a majority, at least 40%, were for the Spanish Republican government that had been toppled. Not Churchill. He said he supported Franco just openly. So, you know, the notion that this is some great anti-fascist, no, he wasn't. And they would have done a deal with Hitler had the occasion arisen to unite against common enemies, which, I mean, you know, you have evidence of this in what happened after the war. In Italy, 70% of the official fascist state structure, 70% of judges, magistrates, police chiefs, prison governors, generals were kept on to serve the new state. 
which was under Western influence. In Germany, the figure was between 45 and 50 percent. So when the opponents of these new states from the left said the fascists are still ruling us, I mean, it wasn't literally the case because there was formerly, there was, of course, democracy. But in terms of state structures, they were. And in Japan, which we haven't talked about today, Hirohito played a central role in declaring the Second World War as far as Japan was concerned, in joining it. He okayed the attack on Pearl Harbor. They didn't remove him. Hirohito himself was preparing his speech to the war crimes tribunal when General MacArthur walked in, the American consul, and said, that's it. We're not trying you. Because he'd been told that if you get rid of the monarchy in Japan, its roots go very deep and the communists and the socialists will take over Japan. That was their priority during, before, and after the war. Quite honestly, this is now sort of public knowledge. I mean, the massacre that took place in Nanjing, in China, by the Japanese, you know, I mean, mass rapes of girls and women from the ages of seven to the ages of 70 took place every single day when the Japanese took that city. Any protest? No. Is it mentioned in European history books? Barely. Did Churchill refer to it in his tomes on the Second World War? No, because it was Japanese killing Chinese, so who cares? So there's a lot of history of that war which really hasn't been uh, told and its role in the Far East. I'm curious about how these stories and these kind of mistellings of histories, obfuscations, play a role in shaping a British sense of self, constructing the idea of like the ordinary British citizen, the white working class who is supposed to ally themselves sort of literally and uh, symbolically, emotionally with these systems of power. Uh, Priya, I was wondering if you could weigh in on this. Yeah, I mean, look, um, you know, I often think that I would like to provide a very nuanced and sophisticated answer to questions like this. But actually, the truth is very crude. And that is that in many ways, the story of racial shared belonging has trumped in many instances actually existing class divisions. I mean, this is the kind of thing that the American historian David Ridiger has uh, written about extensively in his understanding of how, you know, whiteness as an ideology develops. And I think that you know, Rüdiger obviously writes largely about the American context, but much of what he says applies to Britain as well, that this invocation of shared whiteness, for instance, this invocation of shared imperial glory does perform the very crude function of obscuring the very real class divisions, which are, as we can see before our very eyes today, increasing rapidly and viciously. Britain has a small and extremely wealthy oligarchy. There's there's no other word for it. An extremely large and day by day increasing class gap. Now, I think that this is something on which, you know, Tariq and I probably do see things differently, which is that for me, the imperial mythology was quite significant in 
driving Brexit in the sense that this idea of Britain as a plucky little kingdom that had a special relationship with its colonies, that didn't need Europe, that could go it alone in the world, leading the Commonwealth. I think that, you know, whatever one might think of Brexit, that the story of imperial specialness and the story of this kind of joint endeavor between the ruling classes and the so-called white working classes in Britain, I think that was leveraged in order to drive some of the results that we saw of the Brexit, of the Leave campaign. And, and I'm saying this because I think the issue is not so much, I mean, there are many reasons to be for or against the European Union, but the actual fact of Brexit, and I know Tarek will think about this somewhat differently, was for me driven by an imperial mythology put into the service of British exceptionalism. Would you agree with that characterization, Tarek? No, I don't agree with it. <laughs> if tomorrow Britain re-entered Europe, I think most people would accept it because it's been such a total disaster not necessarily on the ideological front, but certainly in terms of everyday life. So I, I don't think it had much to do with that. For me, the crowds that voted for Brexit, the largest vote in English history since the franchise was uh, uh, universalized, uh, were not that different, with the same weaknesses as the Gilets jaunes protests in France. It was a pox on all your houses for different reasons. Some were racist, others weren't. They just saw decay, a country not able to maintain its social networks. It was a protest uh, vote. And the the right-wing government, Johnson didn't expect to win. That was perfectly obvious because they had no idea of deep hatreds that had been mounted and not all of these were. Some were reactionary, not all of them were. I mean, I went and spoke at uh, meetings denouncing the EU, which was raised in this thing into a gold standard. The EU is wonderful. In fact, Britain's entry into the EU was largely the product of Britain not wanting the Germans to become the dominant power for the Americans, not for anyone else. They didn't want to be replaced. And that too, these politicians thought, would help it. But there is a deeper, much, much deeper problem than all this. Because while uh, there were noble and good voices during the empire, I would say that the overwhelming bulk of the British working class was won over to empire. I mean, when you see documentaries today of S Scottish Scottish workers, you know, singing, rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves as the Queen is bursting the champagne bottle on the latest version of the yacht, Britannia. It went very deep, I think, empire in British working class. But, but, but we are agreeing, Tariq. I mean, we are essentially, you know, in a sense that, that this is what happened. They were successful. I don't think so. I think that if you look at the votes, I mean, some of the towns where this vote was for, I mean, if we're getting involved in a discussion on Brexit, was in large immigrant communities. I mean, if you look at the vote for Brexit in communities like Bradford and the neighboring towns where you have a very large South Asian working class and shopkeeper presence. So I think there were different reasons 
for for voting Brexit. And I've never thought of it as linked that directly to recovering the empire, because you have to be completely nutty to think the British Empire, you know, even memories of it, when the dominant state is the United States. I'd like to talk just a little bit about... I- I guess I'm fascinated by how the ways in which this uh, this mythology, these mythologies, plural, are kind of adapted to be leveraged as necessary for sort of different moments in history. Tarek, you talk in your book about Tony Blair's usage of Churchill as a sort of totemic figure through the uh, so-called war on terror, through these sort of new imperial projects, um, through these new sort of imperial wars. Eleanor, the thing is this. The empire was supported by Labour. Officially, the Fabians, Bernard Shaw, the Webbs, were all staunch supporters of the civilization thesis, that British civilization was more advanced, and therefore taking the civilization to the natives could only be beneficial. Huge. I mean, there were disagreements, of course, as Priya points out correctly. But by and large, the imperial story was very successful. I mean, throughout the war cabinet, Attlee and in particular Bevin supported Churchill on everything, including, by the way, I mean, nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were used when Attlee was prime minister. So on foreign policy, Labour has nine times out of ten been no different from the Conservatives, and now it's ten out of ten with uh, with, uh, Starmer and before him Blair. I mean, basically for them, what the United States does is right. NATO has become an essential loyalty question now for Labour members of Parliament. This This is new. It wasn't so open. Criticisms were allowed. That's the Britain we live in. And from that point of view, it's much worse than the times of which Priya is writing or I'm writing, because you always had something going on, a vigorous opposition. And now it exists. It's young people. It's the decolonizers. And they're demonized because what do they do? Throw a can of paint on a Churchill statue. So what? I mean, clean it up, for God's sake. That's what you're paid for instead of going and terrorizing and uh, attacking people, which the cops often do, as we now know in public what Scotland Yard does. Be better employed cleaning the paint off statues. So we're in that state. It's a very grim state. All this leaves me wondering what the, the price of these mythologies are, I guess, sort of what we what we lose when we kind of like you know allow these mythologies to dominate, allow them to be the warp through which all political life is weaved, and through which we kind of like imagine ourselves as political subjects, as sort of you know British people, you know, for myself at least. Pri, could you tell us a little bit about that? So I think you know I begin the book with Frederick Douglass, the Uh, abolitionist and former slave, who made the fundamental point, and every morning when I read the news, I'm reminded of Douglas's words that power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and never will. And that the more people put up with tyranny, the further tyranny will go. And the only way to stop tyranny is to stop putting up with it. And I think that one of the consequences of the myth 
and mythology of freedom, liberation, emancipation, and rights being given by the benevolent ruling forces to the rest of us, I think that's a deeply dangerous mythology. I think what it has done, and I think you can see this um, in a way uh, in Britain today, not notwithstanding the, the amazing young people that, that Tariq was just referring to, between the differences in the way in which France has responded to the raising of the pension age and the relative quiescence in Britain around it, I think there is still a very deeply entrenched idea in Britain that the, the, the ruling classes are fundamentally benevolent and that if you just wait, they will give you what you need. And also that they are fundamentally, in some sense, telling the truth. I think what Douglas does is to say we have to understand that unless we protest, demand and struggle, there will be no change. And that these things, national independence, emancipation from enslavement, the rights that we enjoy, the rights that you know unions won for us, these did not magically appear because, you know, Churchill decided it was time to grant them. And I use Churchill as just one example here, that the only way to make change is to act in the service of change, is to protest, is to demand, is to struggle. And I think that young people are starting to understand this and put this into action. And not just the ones in universities talking about decolonizing, but I'm thinking of young people very profoundly involved in, in climate change work, in extinction rebellion, and trying to connect that to other issues of equity and resource sharing. I think that that understanding that power concedes nothing without a demand is the story that we need to replace the mythologies of benevolence and relative quiescence that have governed the British public sphere. Same question to you, Tarek. I'm particularly interested or guess uh, obsessed personally with this question in the background of, I guess, a generalised sense of grovelling, which try as I might to empathise emotionally as well as intellectually, I cannot understand. At time of recording, we're actually gearing up to crown a new monarch and the sort of the Union Jack bunting is out in full force, making my animal brain quake in fear. So, you know, what what are we to do with with this kind of political culture? Well, I think large numbers of people should go with bad and fresh eggs and chuck them at the uh, royal carriage. That would be one sign. Obviously, they'll be picked up and arrested, so I don't advise people who don't want to be arrested to do that. But criticism of the monarchy has declined in this country. And suddenly, it's there again. You had a funeral of the queen. You've got the coronation of the king. I don't know how long he lasts, but let's say he goes within five years, then there'll be time for another coronation. Sooner or later, people will see through it. But you have to say, not a single political party in parliament, or largely outside too, not a single newspaper, tabloid or non-tabloid, argues against the monarchy, and it being a, such a retrograde example of a country which pretends that it's modern. And added to this is another process which I've described in a short book as the extreme center, 
which is that increasingly there's no difference between mainstream political parties globally. It's worse in some countries than another. And occasionally an opposition leader will behave like an opposition leader. But in, in Britain, it's dire. I mean, the thought that we're going to have Rishi Sunak and by the way, this sort of Tory ploy to say, look, we're non-racist, we've got these uh, Asians and blacks in our cabinet isn't working. If anything, it might actually encourage racism, so I wouldn't advise it. But anyway, uh, to find the most reactionary Asians they can, give them seats, put them in Parliament. Labour hasn't reached that stage, but the Tories have been uh, clever. But I think... You know, when you ask yourself, how will a Starmer government be different in, on, on fundamentals, foreign policy, social and economic policies? I, I have to be completely honest. Starmer is my MP in Camden NW1. I don't intend to vote for him. And I think my anger is not sort of a lonely anger. Lots of people are angry. And so the process we are also seeing is large numbers of young people between the ages of 18 and, say, 25, 26, not bothering to go out and vote. I, it's not a constructive thing, but on the other hand, I understand it. And the same extreme center system, uh, is now afflicted Scotland, where the SNP, in which many people had some hope, has imploded. So how the global system functions is affecting politics everywhere. Priya, for final thoughts, if I could persuade you to gaze into your crystal ball and have a scry about how these myths might be used in the sort of near future of the political moment? You know, I'm not sure I can say exactly how these particular myths will be used, but let me give you a glimpse into my very miserable crystal ball. I think that global authoritarianism is on the increase and that what we are seeing is a coming together of retrograde forces internationally that I think is nearly unprecedented. So when I think, for instance, and this is why earlier I said that I wanted to move away from nations versus nations. So if you think about the India of today, which was once the enemy of the British Empire. This country is now, and I'm actually slightly nervous as I say this because I'm, I'm sitting in India right now, this country is now, has embraced racism, majoritarianism, authoritarianism, and imperialism very fully. It has become the entity that it once apparently resisted. But this is not happening in isolation, that, that you know, leaders like Modi, retrograde forces like the BJP are supported implicitly or explicitly by Western powers. Certainly, there has been very little criticism of what's happening. In Britain, we see increasing authoritarianism, you know, never mind throwing eggs. You could do a peaceful protest and be arrested. We have policing powers like never before. We have a clamping down on protest and 
criticism like never before for all the kind of blather about free speech. It's actually an increasingly unfree society. And I think that this is what I am seeing when I look into my crystal ball, a kind of right-wing internationalism that on the one hand, one might envy from a left position, but on the other hand, very, very dire and I think a situation that it's very difficult to be hopeful about. And I'm not sure that talking in terms of decolonizing alone is very helpful because actually the right wing in in India and elsewhere, in Turkey, for instance, has embraced decolonization in order to kind of facilitate ethnic majoritarianism. So when I look into my crystal ball, I see as was once predicted by people like George Padmore, the forces of imperialism and fascism coming together, but coming together on a vast international scale, on a vast and interlinked international scale. And unless we can think about how to resist this conglomeration of forces, I think we are in in very, very deep trouble. Well, I, I agree largely with Priya on this. We're living in grim times globally. The biggest threat at the moment comes from the possibility of a war between the United States and China. For the United States having targeted China the way it has for one single reason, It's got nothing to do with democratic rights or democracy. Even the Financial Times columnist said that. It's got very little to do with China's treatment of its Muslim minorities or other minorities. It has everything to do with China's incredible economic development since the Deng Xiaoping period. It's this economic development, and the Americans don't hide it. They said, we have to be the global power, and we will crush. Their leaders have written this. Their ideologues write it. Ukraine is peanuts. The Middle East is rubbish. The real enemy is China. So if the United States has decided, or some of their leaders decide, that we have somehow to break up China, And if necessary, by the use of force, we're in serious trouble, because that will really be a threat to humanity as as a whole, because nuclear weapons are bound to be used. So I'm not optimistic on that front. And I think the attempt to eliminate criticism of the United States, you know, under various guises in this country, I mean, it barely exists now. It's very difficult to find a serious article Occasionally you do, but very rarely in the Financial Times. And the Guardian is a dead loss. When I saw them suddenly admitting that their owners, initial owners, were slaveholders and had traded in slavery, my big worry was not that this wasn't true or it was too late. I mean, okay, fine, do it. My big worry was, is this Guardian, which once used to be a liberal paper, going to use this now? to imagine what slave fashion used to be like. What did slave women wear in the house or on the fields? What was slave cooking like? And completely trivialize it, because that's the way they do everything these days. Consumerism, fashions, worship of celebrities. So I think a global conflict is the thing to fear the most, together with all the other things that Priya mentioned, because that would be a disaster. And one of the things to stop that, a most important thing, 
is a movement in the United States, a peace movement to say enough is enough. They did that on Vietnam during the Vietnam War. The American peace movement was without precedent in an imperialist country. They should do that about China too, just for world peace, not saying China's great or this, that. But can I just add one one small thing, which is, and this is something I was getting at when I was talking about Modi and India, that we need to also think about how the locus of imperialism isn't just the United States, that, that the BRICS, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, are culpable of their own imperialisms and that the conflict that you allude to might well come from different directions. I don't actually see the United States, problematic as it is, as the only culpable actor in this scenario. And I am worried about authoritarianism in a global sense. And I mean in places like, you know, Russia, India, China, and Brazil, of course. There is a slight reprieve there right now, but I, I don't actually know what the future holds. And I think that our criticism of warmongering, of imperialism, and of authoritarianism must be genuinely global in understanding the different sides from, from where these, these threats emerge. I would say one thing on that, that if you look at the state of the world, the United States has more bases, more troops in more countries than all these other countries put together. I'm not saying they're not a problem. I'm saying the United States, just because of its economic and military strength, its military budget alone is more than the next eight countries, many of you mentioned, put together. Now, this military budget is used to make armies, it used to develop war technology for what? To preserve US hegemony. And this increasingly now, the use of NATO, this is the West, this is civilization. People are using the word civilization again, including intelligent people in countries like France and Germany, saying we have to do what the Americans say because in the last analysis, they protect Western civilization, which raises many new points, some related to the past and some to the present. But civilizational language is also being used by India, also being used by Russia, also being used by China. Imperialism is morphing and multiplying. It doesn't make the United States or the UK innocent, but actually there are now the Hydra is, is many headed. And, and that is my real worry at this point. The question is this, are any of these countries, you mean India, China, Russia, Brazil, threatening the United States? No. Not a single leader of these countries has said that our aim is to wipe out or destroy the United States. The United States, because of its enormous wealth and power, is in a different league. I honestly think that that has to be understood, because if you don't understand that, it's very difficult to understand global politics. Which, which is changing, but yes, yes. I think it's it's interesting in the light of both of your works how at these key moments of, of the reformation of where hegemony lies on a global scale, who has the, the economic superpower to reshape the world and reshape these colonial relations, these in, inherently fickle, inherently flexible about them, which, which wouldn't survive a basic reckoning with history. It's why I think both of your academic studies both of your research is so vital it has been absolutely wonderful having you both on thank you both so much 
for your time. Thank you for listening. And thanks also to our guests, Tarek Ali and Priyanvada Gopal for sitting down with me to unravel the cult of Churchill and the rewriting of the legacies of empire. Next up, I'll be talking to Ruth Wilson-Gilmore and Dahlia Gabriel about abolition geography. Join us then. You've been listening to the Verso podcast from Verso Books. This episode was hosted by Eleanor Penny and produced by Planet B Productions. For more discussions with radical thinkers, head over to versobooks.com.